The shir this morning is dedicated by Adina and Norman Mischer, Rina and Mark Sakalo, Rabbi Avi and Mindy Har, Le'ilu Nishmas, their beloved parents, Aaron Har, Aharon Ben, Yirmiyahu, Yehoshua, and Sylvia Har, Silka Bas Avraham. And we thank them for this wonderful way to bring an Ilui Hanashama to their parents. But this morning's shir is also dedicated as a very special happy birthday to our regular attendee, Jessica Rossman. Uh, it is dedicated by her children, Ayelet, Ariel, Natan, Avital, Noam, and Adina Rossman, who are very proud to be celebrating their mother's birthday. And what greater way to celebrate than to learn Torah together. So they all say happy birthday, Mom, and uh, they love you so much. And we all love you as well. And I'm sure you appreciated that. Okay, so we had a very uplifting and invigorating Yamtiv, not only here at the Young Israel of Woodmere, but all over this community. And I felt that Torah was almost reverberating through the streets. I was walking the streets at two o'clock in the morning to go from one shul to another, from one location to another to speak. And you saw hundreds of people in every single location where there were shiurim going on. And throughout the night, there were shiurim that were attended by thousands all around the neighborhood. It was really a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. I was completely overwhelmed when I came to the program for women that had seven or eight hundred women who were there throughout the night and learning together with Rabbanim and educators from around the community who came to inspire and to be energized from them and by them. And it just showed the tremendous commitment that our community has to Limar Torah. And it's something that I think is really a point to be proud of. It's a point to be proud of so long as we walk away from Shavuos and feel that that commitment continues to linger on, that that commitment continues to be a part of who we are. It's not just an event that we celebrate once a year, but it's a commitment that we take very seriously throughout the year. So let's attempt this morning to try to consider some of the significant and relevant messages that we can take from this beautiful Yom that we had. And now that we traverse past the experience of Shavuos and we move on to different parts of the Jewish calendar, we have the opportunity to first reflect on what it is that we had celebrated, on what it is that we can perhaps take with us. And last week we began to talk about Megillas Rus, and we had the story of Rus and Arpa and Naomi, their mother-in-law, a very, very fascinating story. I will begin by saying that uh, there were there were some who had sent me an email that they were offended by comments that I made last week. I never want to offend anybody when I speak. Whether you agree or disagree with what I'm saying, I don't offend people. It's not what I do. And if it came off in the wrong way, it's something that I feel very sorry about. It's something that I feel very uncomfortable about. I do not regret one thing that of the point that was made because I don't think that the point was wrong. I think the point was absolutely correct and right. But if it was not said in a sensitive way, that is what I regret. And I feel very sorry if it hurt anybody in the room. I, I'm sorry that it did. And it's never my intention to hurt people, whether they're in the room or listening online. It's not what I do. So uh, I'm sorry about that. That being said, I do think that there's a lot more to continue to say about Rus and Arpa and Ami and things that we can learn from the story that we just read on Shavuos and the story that we focused on throughout the holiday that we just celebrated. Uh, I'm going to have to leave probably five minutes early. There is a Levaya, unfortunately, a Levaya today in Manhattan at 12 o'clock. So I'm going to try to make the 1036 train. In order to do that, I have to leave right after we finish. So let us just try to remind ourselves of that story. 
We have the story of Rus and Arpa, who are sisters, who are daughters of nobility, whose father was the king of Moab, whose father was the leader of Moab. They were non-Jewish women who married two Jewish men. And those two Jewish men that they married were the sons of Naomi and of Elimelech, correct. As we spoke about last week, Elimelech passes away, and then Machlon and Kilion, these two young men die as well, and their wives are now left uh, alone. And now you have three women who are trying to figure out how to move forward with their lives, and what exactly are they going to do? And as we know, Naomi tries to convince them that they should go back to where they came from. There's no reason that they should have a sad life sticking out with her. Why not go back to where you came from, go back to your family, reintegrate yourself, and that is the path that they should choose. As we know, Arpa is the one who chooses to go back, and Rus is the one, Verus Davkaba. Rus is the one who sticks it out and continues to move forward with her mother-in-law, Naomi. So that's what I wanted to discuss a little bit this morning. As they are deliberating, as they're discussing what exactly was going to happen, we're told the following, that although Arpa turned around and decided not to continue on with her mother-in-law, Naomi, the story is not as simple as it sounds. Says the Yalkut Shimoni in Rus as follows, Reb Rachia Amar. Reb Rachia said, Arba psios halcha arpa imchamosa. There were four steps that Arpa took together with her mother-in-law. So it wasn't like they had a discussion and then immediately she turned away and said, you know, I don't want to have a part of it. This is the easy out. I'm going to walk away and go back to my roots. No, that's not what happened. She was vacillating. She was trying to figure out what should I do right now? And she ultimately took four steps together with her mother-in-law, Naomi, in the direction of trying to give her support, in the direction of trying to go along with her. And ultimately, after those four steps, she stopped herself and said, you know, maybe this is not for me. And after those four steps, says the Medrash, she then turned around and went back to where she came from. However, writes the Medrash, there was a tremendous significance to those four steps that she took. Because of the four steps, says the Medrash, she had a descendant whose name we are all familiar with, Goliath. Goliath ultimately is the one who fights against David HaMelech. If you were following the story, the descendant of Rus HaMoaviyah who decides to go along with the program, the descendant was David HaMelech. The descendant of Arpa was Goliath. So the two of them ultimately get into this battle. Goliath is defeated by David HaMelech, which is a major shock to everyone. But that's what happened. So in the end, says the, says the Medrash, that because Arpa, who is the mother of Goliath, because she took four steps in the right direction together with Naomi, she was repaid in kind. How was she repaid? Forty more days Goliath was allowed to remain alive. Goliath deserved to die immediately. Goliath should have been destroyed 40 days earlier. But because the grandmother, the great-grandmother, because she took four steps in the right direction as a result of her kindness, of her generosity, of her strength of character as a result of that, Goliath is entitled to 40 more days of life. To me, that's a very important medrash. It's an important medrash. It's obviously not the focus of the story of Rus. And when we read the Megillah, we probably don't even notice this. Who focuses on that medrash when we have so many bigger things to worry about? or to consider, but that's exactly the point. What the Medrash is trying to teach us is that although this was a very small incident in the general story in the context of Rus and Arpa and the whole end of the story, we have to realize 
that even four steps, something as small and seemingly insignificant as four steps, can be something that in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so compelling, is so meaningful, is so substantial, and is noteworthy, and is deserving of a reward. Just four steps. When we live lives as Jews, the opportunity we have to realize that every little thing we do is significant in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Even though in the end, Arpa turns around, and according to the Medrash, we're told that that night she was involved in such depraved behavior, and she went back to her roots and abandoned everything that she knew about living a good life, an upstanding life as a Jewish wife. She went back to everything that she knew from before, but those four steps were significant. You ever say to yourself, how am I going to do this? It doesn't fit into anything else that I'm about that I represent. And the answer, says the Medrash, is your job now is to take four steps in the right direction. Even if it doesn't lead you to where you ultimately are supposed to go. Even if you end up turning around. But realize, V'chal ma'asecha b'sefer nechtavim. Four steps in the right direction, four seemingly insignificant decisions that you made can have major consequences in the right direction, even if it doesn't lead you to where you want to be. But that really is the great story that we learn from ARPA. And to me, that's an extremely significant point that is raised in the Megillah, something that I think is probably often overlooked. I read an uh, amazing quote from Dr. Russell, who was a Princeton astronomer. He once gave a lecture about the Milky Way. And somebody said to him afterward, a woman approached him after the talk and said, I'm so amazed by everything you said, but if you believe that our world is so little in the context of the Milky Way, and the universe is so great, then how can we believe that God pays any attention to us? It's a great question. To which he responded, that depends entirely on how big a God you believe in. If you believe that God is bigger than all of this, then he can pay attention to everything. And that is exactly what we believe. We believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so great, is so big, and as a result of that, he has the ability to manage everything because he's so big, because he's not as small as we are, because he is not as defined as we are. He has the ability to notice everything and to take note of all that goes on in our world and to pay a person back for significant acts. And look what happened here. This wasn't just a payback in her own life. This was something that had reverberations for generations after her. Imagine the small steps we could take that can make such a compelling difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who will come after us as well. Let's think about yet another very important point that stems from the way that the Torah introduces us to the Yom Tovim. In Parsha Samar and Sefer Vayikra, the Torah has a very interesting configuration of how we are introduced to all the Yom Tovim. The Torah first introduces us to the story of Pesach, and we're all familiar why we observe Pesach. It's all because we know that on Pesach we had the opportunity to come out of Mitzrayim, we became free, and as a result of that, it led us to Shavuos, which was Man Matan Torosenu. So the Torah outlines Pesach and Shavuos together. Naturally, those go together. After that, we have a break, seemingly something that has nothing at all to do with the topic at hand, the Torah then gets into a discussion, And it will be, now that we've finished telling you about Pesach and Shavuos, let me introduce you to an entirely new halacha that has nothing at all to do with Pesach and Shavuos. And what is this halacha? 
uvekutzrechem es ketzir artzrechem. When you are harvesting the field, lo sechale paas sadcha bekutzrecha. Make sure that you leave over the corner of the field. You are not allowed to cut it down. And make sure that as you're doing the collection, as you're picking all of your harvesting, you have to make sure you have to make sure that if there was anything that was dropped in the field along the way, as you're doing the collection, you have to leave it there. Why do you leave it there? This is a halacha that has no connection at all to Yamim Tovim. We don't harvest on Yom Tov. So the Torah first introduces us to Pesach. Then we are introduced to Shavuos, followed by a discussion about Leket and Peah, making sure that we take care of the poor people in our community, followed by a discussion in the Torah about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So it's right in the middle, right in the middle of the Parsha Samawadim, right in the middle of the whole discussion about the Yom and Tovim, there is then this discussion that has no connection at all to anything that's been said. And the Torah makes it a point to introduce us to things that have to do with harvesting. And Rashi there on Chumash wonders, how does this fit into the context of the Moadim? Obviously everything in the Torah is there for a calculated purpose. Obviously everything is there for a very specific reason. So how does this make its way into the middle of Parsha Samoadim? Says Rashi, Amar Abdimi Berebi, Ma'ra hakasav litna be'emtza haregalim. Why is it that the Torah puts this right in the middle of everything? It has Pesach ve'atzeres mikan. We have Pesach and Shavuos there, followed by Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot on the other side. Ask Rashi, how do you explain that? How can that be understood? And Rashi gives his own ex- explanation to interpret why it is that this is found right in the middle of Parshas Hamoadim. You could say, you could say very simply, the last day of Yom Tif, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, the last day of Yom Tif, we have a special Kriya Satorah that we read in every shul. And what is that? Every Yom Tif we read that portion in the Chumash that talks about giving Meiser, about giving Tzedakah. Why do we do that? Because that's the purpose. That's the takeaway message of a Yom Tif. You had a wonderful time with your family and friends. You had a great time with your community. That's because you could afford to do so. Why not spend a few moments at the end of Yom Tif thinking about those who don't have the same privileges and opportunities that you have? That's what Yantav is meant to be about. When the Rambam talks about Simchas Yantav, he describes a person who sits around with his family members and their friends and they bring in all of these delicacies and have a great time and all in the service of God, all because they want to observe Simchas Yantav in the greatest possible manner. However, says the Rambam, if that's where it ends, if you don't make sure to then go forward and do something else because of the wonderful feeling that you have of your family being together, and uh, you're going to challenge me. You're right. You're right, I got you, you're right. So, Aser to Aser, look it up, is the beginning of the Kriya Satoru. I got it, yes. We have a good, responsible Gaba here. You're correct. But we do read Aser to Aser on every, the end of Yom Tev. And the reason why is because that's the recap of what a whole Yom Tev is about. You had a wonderful time spending family time and friends and enjoying Yom Tev. The answer to that is the response has to be Aser to Aser. The response needs to be, you need to make sure to then give and be generous to other people. That needs to be what we think about as we celebrate a Yom Tif, which is why my father often says, people have a mistaken impression what Yizkar is all about. So you go to shul, and the rabbi gives a drasha about why we're saying Yizkar. All the things that they're saying are drashas. What's the real reason why we say Yizkar? 
Bottom line, why do we say Yisgar on Pesach, on Shavuos, and on Sukkot? So people think because how can we spend the Yom Tiv without our parents who are deceased? How can we spend an entire week of family time over Sukkot and not invite our parents into the conversation? That's what people think. That is a mistake. That is not why we say Yisgar. I'll ask you, how do you spend the Shabbos without talking about your parents? So why do we say Yisker? It's not to make us sad. You're not supposed to be sad on Yom Tif. So much so that the, our, there are two minhagim, whether somebody who's in the middle of Yud Beis Chodesh, somebody who just recently lost a relative, are they supposed to say Yisker the first year or perhaps not? Many have the minhag not to. Why? The reason why is because it's going to be too much of an emotional experience for you. It's going to be too hard for you to say Yisker without crying. Now, there are some people who are going to have difficulty even years after that tragedy, even years after the loss. Yisker is not made to make us cry. You're not supposed to cry in Yom Tif. So why do we say Yisker? The reason we say Yisker, my father always explains, is as follows. The last day of Yom Tif, we talk about Aser to Aser. We talk about the opportunity that we have to give Tzedakah. In doing so, all of us, of course, are going to make a pledge to Tzedakah, whatever it's going to be, to your favorite cause, to your favorite charity, whatever that might be, to help other people. You're going to give money to tzedakah. Once I'm doing a good action, once I'm doing something positive, I should invoke the memory of my parents and say that tzedakah that I'm giving is in the merit of my parents who taught me to be a good person, in the merit of my parents who brought me up, who raised me to be this kind of individual who gives charity, who helps others, who's generous to other people, who understands the needs. That's what Yizkar is all about. It all comes down to tzedakah. Because at the end of Yom Tev, that's really what we're supposed to be doing thinking about Stukka, about the privileges that we might have had over this Yom Tif, and about those in our community who unfortunately may not share the experience that we have had. And we need to think about them and we need to help them. That is what Yizkar is about. That's what the last day of Yom Tif is about. And perhaps, maybe that's why the Torah here sticks this into the Parsha Samoadim. It reminds us of the opportunity that we have to give Leket, to give Peah, to think about the Ani. Maybe that's why it's there. It's not what Rashi says. But maybe that's the interpretation I was thinking of. But perhaps another interpretation could be as follows. Each one of the Yom Tovim is something that is so glamorous. Think about the themes of each Yom Tif. Pesach is about Zman Chayrusein, and we talk about going free. We talk about what does it mean to be the Jewish people, the Yom HaNivchar. Shavuos is the time when we talk about Kabbalah Satorah, and God came to us in Har Sinai and gave us the Aseris HaDibros and did such an amazing spectacle where the whole world came to a standstill, all because of Kabbalah Satorah. Rosh Hashanah is a time, as we know, is Yom Hadid. Very serious time in the Jewish calendar. These are very lofty themes. These are celebrated throughout the Jewish calendar. Yom HaKippurim is the Day of Atonement. Followed by Sukkot, which we talk about, is the Tzlusa de Behemna, where we're in the embrace, the loving embrace of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Wonderful, it's all great. You know what? Judaism, Yiddishkeit, is not only about all of these great, big, exciting ideas. You know what Judaism is about? It's about leket kitzir It's about never forgetting that poor person. It's about the small actions that we engage with every day of our lives. It's about tomorrow morning, are you going to say Kriyashma before the Zman Kriyashma? Or are you going to neglect it because I just had a wonderful celebration and I stayed up the whole night on Sukkot? on Shavuos, and I learned the whole night, but did you daven? Is it exciting that you stayed up the whole night? Of course it is. Is it wonderful that we have all of these amazing 
moments on the Jewish calendar that we celebrate and that the whole world knows about all these great themes, yes, it's great. But it really means nothing if that doesn't translate into the day-to-day, very mundane, small activities that our Kaddish Baruch Hu expects all of us to be involved with. How careful am I going to be with Taras HaMishpacha? How careful am I going to be with everything that I encounter, that I engage every day of my life? So if I have children to get out to school in the morning and I'm not able to daven shachris, understandable. You're not obligated to daven shachris. But what if I don't have children? Do I make it a point every morning to daven shachris and to say Kriya Shema before the Zman? Do I? Is that the first thing on my list of things to do every single day in the morning? If it's not, then of what value is everything else? The point of all of these inspirations that HaKadosh Baruch Hu highlights on our calendar is to make us have the opportunity to remind us that throughout the year we have that leket kitzircha lo selaket. We have those small, private, modest moments between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu where he wants us to be reminded that that is extremely significant. The four steps of ARPA were significant. Even though it's not the major drama of the story, but those four steps were very important and were very significant. And so is everything in our tradition. Everything that we do has significance. Not only the Pesach, the Shavuos, the Sukkot, the Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. What the Torah means to teach us here is Leket Kitzir Halosa Laket is also very, very important. I was at a wedding last week right after the Codex Sasson was... Codex Sassoon? Is that the right way? Sassoon was sold for over $30 million. There was a lot of discussion at the wedding, for those who were there, a lot of discussion at the wedding, who sold it and who got it. And isn't it amazing? People were showing pictures. I'll tell you what I was amazed about. I was amazed about the fact that people were so amazed by this old version of the Bible. Meanwhile, they don't read the old Bible that we have here in the shul every Shabbos. Why are you so excited about the fact that Sotheby's sent this, sold this Bible for $30 million? Have you ever sat down when you came home from a hard day at work, a hard day of doing whatever you did, and went through the Parsha of that week? You do. Great. Parsha's HaShavua. <laughs> but not everybody does. And I was thinking so much about that. Imagine if everybody who was so inspired by the sale of this $30 million Bible took upon themselves, you know, I love and appreciate the Bible so much. I don't have $30 million to spend on that. I'm not sure what I would do with it. I would probably give it to a museum anyway. I don't want it in the house. But... You know, I'm going to show that Bible is actually important to me. It's not as exciting. It's not worth $30 million, the art scroll Tanakh that I have at home. But maybe. But maybe it's more valuable to me in my life. I'm not, I'm not talking down about that Sotheby's. It's great. It's amazing. But I'm just thinking, did anyone walk away from that experience from those articles that we read and say to themselves, you know, the Bible is actually valuable. Maybe I'm going to try to integrate it a little bit more into my life because it's really important. It's not just the one who walked away with a $30 million purchase. It's me, because the Bible relates to me. And I have the same copy of that in my house. That's even readable. And I don't use it. Why do I not use it? Because it's not as exciting. If I had this copy of the Codex in my, in my house, I would look at it every day. Would I learn anything? No. But I would look at it every day. I would marvel at it. I would be amazed by its content. But we have that every day. It's just not as exciting. And what HaKadosh Baruch Hu reminds us from the story of Arpa is, what he reminds us from the story of Leket and Peah is, that's where Judaism is at. 
It's not about the antiques. It's not about the exciting moments. All the exciting moments are great. Only if they propel us forward to make us realize that there are so many small things along the way that we need to pay attention to. So that perhaps is what the Torah's message is when it comes to the idea of Leket in the middle of Parsha Samawadim. Go back to Parsha's Noah. When the Torah tells us about the destruction in the days of Noah, and the Medrash tells us very clearly, Rashi writes, how did everything happen? How did the society deteriorate? How did it start? Because they were involved in Gezel Pachos Mishava Pruta. People started going off the rails when they were doing small acts of thievery against each other. It was Gezel Pachos Mishava Pruta. I would never go and break into your house and steal your car. I would never go in and take something of great value. But I would go if you have a shop on the side of the road and you're selling oranges, I would go and take a couple of them. Yeah, it's only worth five cents anyway. What's the big deal? I would go and steal a little bit here, a little bit there. And when I go to the bank, I would take the pen. Again, maybe you're allowed to take it. I don't know. But when I go to somebody's office and I'm sitting there at a meeting and I take the pen home, eh, do they really care? They probably don't really care, but uh, do I have a right to take that? Is it really mine? The bank. The bank is good. The bank, I think they allow you. I'm sorry. Don't get me wrong. But Gezel Pachas Mishav Pruta means... People who weren't paying attention, of course. I'm not a bad person. I don't steal from people. That's not the kind of life that I live. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu demands more of us. It's not just the big acts of thievery. It's not doing something very dramatic. It's paying attention to everything I do. It's asking myself, do I have a right to touch this? Does this really belong to me? Do I have a right to be involved in this? Can I really take this home? I, I got an email once from somebody who worked at a bakery. I'm not, sorry, somebody who was a, a customer at a bakery. And they said that they felt very uncomfortable because they go every Arab Shabbos to the bakery with their little kids. And they said every time they come, the woman behind the counter gives them a little cookie for the kids. And they said, isn't it stealing? Isn't it stealing? So I was so touched by the sensitivity of this person that they're asking such a question. And they said they stopped bringing the kids to the bakery because they felt uncomfortable that every time the person behind the counter was giving them a cookie for the kids. Now, I was amazed by the sensitivity of the person who was asking, but I totally disagree. Even if you're not the owner of the bakery, I would venture to say the owner of the bakery gives full permission to the person who's working behind the counter to make people feel good when they come with their little children. And everybody knows that if a kid is going to walk in with a cookie, they're going to want to come back again. Right? So it's just good for business. If for nothing else, it's just good for business. So, you know, they always tell the story about Rabban Soloveitchik. I don't know if the story is true or not, but they tell such a story that Rebaran Soloveitchik was a very careful person with everything. And he was once in the airport and they asked him something about getting an upgrade. I forgot exactly what it was. And he asked the woman, are you really authorized to give me that upgrade? And she says, well, uh, I think so. And he says, well, are you the owner of, of JetBlue? Are you the owner of the company, of American Airlines? And she says, obviously I'm not. I just work here in the airport. And he said, okay, I'm not going to take the upgrade. I'm not going to sit there. Again, it's a beautiful story and it tells the sensitivity of a person and how careful they are, but is it really true? I'm not sure. I think the owner of JetBlue gives some kind of leeway to a person who works in the company to allow them to do something reasonable. If there's an empty seat on the flight anyway and nobody's going to be sitting there, so try to make a customer feel good, it's not such a, it's not such a thievery. So again, it's amazing that we have personalities who are sensitive to this, that we have people who are so careful about it, somebody who doesn't want to bring their kids to the bakery anymore. I, I told them, I think... 
The great benefit of your children helping you shop for Shabbos is something that's very special. That's an opportunity that I wouldn't take away. And I said, if I were you and you're so uncomfortable and you don't trust that the owner of the bakery really gave an allowance to the person sitting behind the counter to give it to you, I would say pay an extra 25 cents for that cookie because the value of having your child shop for Shabbos together with you is greater than whatever they're going to lose by not going with, with you. That's the decision I would make as a mechanic, as a parent. But again, everybody makes their own decisions. But here, Gezel Pachas Mishava Pruta is where everything disintegrated, where everything deteriorated. How can it be? Because people weren't paying attention to those small little aspects of life that they felt were so trivial. You know that on Shavuos we read the Aseras Adibros. And we talk about Kabbalah Satorah, Zman Matan Torah amazing. Well, if the Aseras Adibros are so fundamental, if you believe that the Aseras Adibros are such an indispensable part of the religion, if it's something that all of us have to realize is so significant, then why don't we say the Aseras Adibros every single day? There are some people who say Animamas every day, you say the Sheish Zechiros every day, we say Kriyashma every day. Why? Because without Kriyashma, where would we be? If you don't believe in God, then how can you do any of his mitzvahs? So, of course, we say Kriyashma every day to reinforce our belief in the Rebona Shalom. Well, I ask you, if you don't believe in the Ten Commandments, how do you believe in anything else? So why is the Aseris Adibros not a major part of our davening every day? Good question. It's actually the Gemara's question. That's how good of a question it is. Ask the Gemara, how could it be that they left out the Aseris Adibros from Tefillah every day? Now, it's not really a Tefillah, not really asking for anything, but it should be a part of the Siddur somewhere. We should stick it in somewhere. And we have to recite the Aseris Adibros every day in the context of our daily Tefillah. The answer the Gemara says is yes. The Aseris Adibros used to be a part of the Siddur. We used to say the Aseris Adibros every day as part of our davening. And what happened? Says the Gemara, people walked away with a mistaken impression. What did they think? They thought the Aseris Adibros are so fundamental. Aseris Adibros are so foundational to the religion. That's why we say it every day in the davening. And it means nothing else really matters. So, of course, Shabbos is very important to me. And, of course, Los Signov is very important. And Los Sinov and all of the Aseris Adibros, Kabedes Avicha, all of those, I got it. But Taras HaMeshpacha, eh. The laws of Tznius, giving Staka every day, nah, that's not really so important. And all the other mitzvahs that we have really did not get people excited because they said, all we need to do is the Aseris Adibros. After all, that's the part of davening that we say every day. And isn't that the most basic foundational point of what Yiddishkeit is all based on. Says the Gemara, it was leading people to the wrong impression. It was making them think that it's just the Aseris Adibros and nothing more is required. And that's a mistake. So you know what? We're going to take the Aseris Adibros out of the davening. You understand what a price we paid for doing that? Now there are many people who don't even know what the Aseris Adibros are. Not every shul has the Aseris Adibros hanging on the wall. Many shuls don't have the Aseris Hadibros for that very reason. The Magen Avram discusses, are you allowed to have a sign with the Aseris Hadibros in the front of your shul? Magen Avram is not sure. Maybe you shouldn't because it will lead a person to believe that Judaism is limited to the Aseris Hadibros and nothing more. And that's why many shuls do not have. There are many shuls who do. There's a reason for that. But there are many shuls who don't. The base Aaron, the Reisha Rav writes in his Chuba, in case you're wondering, what is the rationale for a person building a shul to have the Aseris Adibros written on top. He says, because we place the Aseris Adibros right on top of the Sifri Torah, right on top of the Aron Kodesh. We don't just have a picture hanging on the wall somewhere. We have it right on top of the Aron. Isn't it clear and obvious to everybody that this is just 
a subtext of everything that we're about to open up in the Torah itself. It's obvious. No one's going to make the mistake. However, when it comes to tefillah, says the Gemara, if all you're going to say is the Aseros Hadibros, you're going to walk away with the impression that that's all that matters and nothing else. And it's better for us to have nothing. It's better for us not to have the Aseros Hadibros recited than to walk away with the mistaken impression that the small, seemingly insignificant mitzvos that we encounter every day are not really so significant. It's not worth it. Take the Aseros Hadibros out. In describing the descent, the decline of the Jewish people at the time of the Churban Beis Hamikdash, Yirmiya Hanavi writes in Megillas Eicha, Tumasa Bishuleha. What does Tumasa Bishuleha mean? Means the impurities of the Jewish people were found, were discovered. Bishuleha means on the fringes, on the outer perimeter, on the margins. What exactly does that mean? that the imperfections of the Jewish people were found on the periphery? How do you understand that? The Dubna Magid gives a mashal to understand it, and so often the Dubna Magid's mashalim really bring to light what the intent of the psukim actually is. So the Dubna Magid explains as follows. There was an individual who was once asked to host a major gathering, a big banquet in his home. But he wasn't the kind of person that did this often. He really did not have a lot of experience in putting something like that together. So he was advised by his friends exactly how to do every step of this process. First thing they told him is, you have to buy a tablecloth. And once you figure out what color theme, what color scheme you're going to have, then everything else works around that. The flowers are going to have to match the tablecloth. The, the, the plates you're going to order. Everything's going to have to work around the tablecloth. But it all begins with a beautiful tablecloth. So they tell him that he should go to the fabric industry, and you should purchase a very elegant, quality fabric material, and that's what he should use as his tablecloth. Okay, he goes into the fabric district, starts talking to a couple of merchants there, finally they show him something that is absolutely exquisite, and he decides he's going to go with it. As he's finishing up his purchase, the salesman, the agent, turns to him and says, you know, I would encourage you, I would recommend that after you take this raw piece of fabric home, you should go to a seamstress, you should go to a tailor and have the hem sewed up on the sides, on the edges. And he looks back at this individual and he says, I don't understand. You're the retailer. You're telling me that I should spend all this money to buy this piece of fabric. Is it good or is it not good? If there's something deficient about it, and now I'm going to have to go and spend more money after I leave your store to have something else done by the tailor, doesn't that mean there's something wrong with the fabric? So the salesman turns to him and says, no, you don't understand. There's nothing wrong with it. Everything's perfect. But you need to hem up the edges because it's unfinished. The whole top of it is beautiful. It's perfect. But because we cut a raw piece of fabric, you have to put a hem, you have to put a trimming. Back and forth, they're discussing. Finally, the salesman turns to him and says, listen, you don't want to do it? Don't do it. Take the fabric home, put it on your table, and see what happens. That's what he does. He's so disappointed that this man was trying to get more money out of him to go to the tailor, to go to the seamstress. He believed that they're in cahoots together, they're trying to make more money. Anyway, he brings it home, and he puts it out on the table. And what happens? He has this beautiful banquet. But as we know, when you have a young child sitting at the Shabbos table, 
sometimes when there's adult conversation going on, they're not really so interested. Now, let's pause the story there. Therefore, we should make sure that we have conversations happening at our table that are relevant for children. That's the therefore. We should make sure that our children are not going to be bored and walk away from the table and not be interested because it's more important that we invest in our children than that we invest in our friends who are there for the Shabbos meal, spending it with us. That's the end of the story. But if we were to go back to the Dubna Magid's Mashal, it's not what happened at this banquet. And they were having adult conversation and there were some kids around the table who were bored out of their minds, didn't really know what to do. So what did they decide? This little kid notices that there are some strings sticking out on the edges. This is a great game. So he starts tugging at one of them and he starts pulling on the string. And after he finishes pulling on it and getting all the ones around him, he decides, well, this is really fun, but there's nothing left on this side. Let me go to the opposite side. And nobody notices, pushes his way around to the other side of the table, puts down a chair there and starts pulling out all the strings from the opposite side until before they know it, the entire, the entire beautiful piece of fabric has now been destroyed. The whole thing is unraveled. How did it start? It all started because nobody was paying attention to the fringes. Because nobody was paying attention to those strings that were sticking out on the edges. And says the Dubna Magid, that's what it means, Tumasa Bishulah. Tumasa Bishulah means the Jewish people were doing pretty well. But they just weren't paying attention to those small details, those small aspects of life. You talk about somebody who's having major shalom bias concerns. It usually doesn't start with a blow-up out of nowhere. It starts because somebody is not sensitive enough, somebody is not careful enough, one spouse or the other is not being respectful enough, not because they hate each other. It ends up, after all of those little things, that they do hate each other. But it all starts with something very small. Great people go down because they stub their toe, right? Not always because they're, they're shot in the head. Not always because they, they have something dramatic that happens to them. And you have the smallest thing that happens. Sometimes it makes a tremendous impact and a very significant difference. And that's the job that we all have, to be mindful and attentive to the smallest details of our lives and of specifically our lives in relation to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. For anyone who's ever applied for a job, you know that compiling a resume is something that is an art. It's an uncomfortable task because I'm supposed to present myself to another individual who doesn't really know me. And I have to figure out what to put on a bio, on a resume, but I don't know exactly what they'll appreciate or what they want. So what should I put on? What should I put off? And how can I limit all of my personal and professional accomplishments to one piece of paper, one paragraph? I lived a whole life. What am I going to put it all in one, one sheet of paper? My life is much richer than that. So it's a skill, it's an art. Imagine if you would be tasked with the impossible task of compiling a resume for the Ribbona Shalom. Imagine if you had to write a resume, a bio, for HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. What exactly would you choose to include in that? What would you write on his resume? Which moment in history would you choose to accent or to highlight? Would you talk about Kriyas Yamsuf? Would you talk about all the amazing spectacles of the Makos and Mitzrayim? Would you talk about Kabbalah Satora? What would you say? Would you talk about Briel Shamayim Ba'aretz? What would you highlight? What would you focus on? There are so many different ways to go. Well, what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself write 
on his own resume in Parshas Ekev. What is the Rebona Shalala most proud of? Writes the Pasuk, Parshas Ekev. Osem Mishpat Yasam Ve'amana Ve'ohev Ger Laseis Lo Lechem Vesimla. You know what the Rebona Shalalam prides himself on? Not on Bria Shamayim Ve'aretz. Not on the fact that he did all the Makas in Mitzrayim. Not on the fact that he took us out and he split the sea. And he gave us the Man and Anani Arkavod. And the Be'er Shal Miriam. And all the amazing, amazing miracles that we experience as a people. None of that. How does the Rebona Shalalam refer to himself? What does he say? You know what I'm most proud of? Osem Mishpat Yasam Ve'amana. You know what that means? That HaKadosh Baruch Hu pays attention to those people who are so often neglected and undervalued in the community. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is proud that he fiercely defends the one who is disadvantaged, or the one who has an unfortunate fate. It's not about Bria Shemayim Haaretz or Eser Makos. Somebody in our shul came over to me after they heard I was in Washington, D.C. for something, and they said, you know, we're so proud. You met the vice president, amazing. And I said, you think that's what I'm most proud of? I am most proud that there are people in this community who I have helped make it through Yamtiv. I am most proud that there are people in this community who could not send their kids to yeshiva, and I went down to the school to talk to the principal to make sure this kid has a school to go to next year. And I am most proud of the people who have such unfortunate circumstances right here in our shul, who have a divorce going on and their children are spiraling out of control. And I sat with those kids to try to help support them. That's what I'm most proud of. Do I care that I go to Washington, D.C. once a year? Couldn't care less. It's not what I'm about. It's not what matters. It's not what we focus on. Where does that get you? What does it do? I feel every yumtif. I sit down with my wife before every yumtif. And we always think... Is there anyone in this community who we can help before Yamtif? Do you know how many amazing people we have in this community who offer to help before Yamtif? Every year before Rosh Hashanah, I sit down with my wife and I ask, is there anyone whose life we've changed forever this year by something that we've done? If the answer to that is no, we were failures. We failed. I think we should all feel that way. We all have the opportunity to change someone's life to do something good, to help someone out in a very significant way. It doesn't mean with money. It means with our time. It means with our sensitive heart. It means with us being able to listen to another person and just be there for them. We don't always have to say something. We don't always have to give. Sometimes we just need to be willing to receive. Sometimes that's also a gift that you can give someone. To just listen. To just be there for them. Can you say with confidence every year, Rosh Hashanah, that you have changed the person's life forever? I aspire to be able to answer that question every year. I hope the answer is always going to continue to be yes. Otherwise, Lama Li Chaim, why am I here? I'm here to go to Washington, D.C. and meet the Vice President? Is that why I'm here? Seriously. La Charmeya Ve'esrim Shana, is that where they're going to talk about at my Levaya? I hope not. I really hope not. I'll be so embarrassed. What are they going to talk about? I hope what they're going to talk about is the people that you impacted, the difference that you made, the simple people. That's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaches us. 
It's not about saying, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, I am the God that did everything, that created the world, that did the Yasser Makos, that took you out of Mitzrayim. But rather, I am the God that is Oseh Mishpat Yasom Ve'amana. I'm not ashamed to say that that's where I spend my time, that that's where I give my focus, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that I make sure to pay attention to all those people that everyone's overlooking. The Ger and the Yasom Ve'amana who are disadvantaged, who nobody's paying enough attention to. I was so inspired. A couple of weeks ago, we had a meeting of Rabbanim here. And there was somebody from Lawrence who came to speak. I had never met him before. His name is Mr. Wallowitz. He's a businessman. I never heard of him. His presentation shook me to the core. I was so amazed by what he said. He started a whole program by mistake. He, has, he had found out from a cousin of his that she had a relative who was divorced in the neighborhood and wasn't really being able to pay her bills because her husband, her ex-husband, wasn't really sending so much money. Whatever it may have been, I don't remember exactly what the details were. And the cousin who lived in Brooklyn asked him to go and visit this divorcee who lived here somewhere in the five towns. He goes to visit her and he sees that there's no lights on. And he says, why are there no lights on? She says, well, I couldn't pay the electric bill, so they had to shut off my electricity. And as he's getting in a conversation with her, one of the children of this family walks into the kitchen and says, Mom, I'm hungry. And she says, okay, so have another bowl of cereal. And he says, do you serve your children Cheerios for dinner? And she says, yes, what else do you want me to give them? I have nothing, I can't afford to have anything more than that. And he went on a crusade on his own. He pays from his own pocket. He gives his own money to take care of every single grusha, every single divorcee in our neighborhood. Amazing. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars he's given over the last, I think he said it was 15 years since he started this. He has a couple of his friends in Lawrence who are helping him. And he has zero communal support. It's not an infrastructure. He has no office. He has nothing. I forgot the number of how many grushas he has. And he said in the middle of the meeting that he once went to one of his friends in Shul and he said, you know, can you help out? Maybe you should give a few thousand dollars to help this grusha. And the guy says, well, how long has this woman been living in our neighborhood? And he says, she's been living here three and a half months. So he says, so now they're all coming from Brooklyn to live here because they know that we're going to take care of these divorcees. You think we have to take care of them? And he said, isn't it a privilege? Isn't it a privilege that your community should be known as the place where every person who's disadvantaged knows they'll come here and you won't be left on the streets starving? Don't you feel blessed to live in such a community? That other places know you can move here and we'll take care of you. And we don't care how long you've lived here, but you're a human being and we worry about you. Because nobody else is. This man basically stood up at the meeting and he said, look, I don't know how old he is. He's in his 80s, I think. He said, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to die someday. And it's on all of you, Rabbanim, because this is not my job. This is your job. It's your job to be taking care of all these people and you're not doing a thing. It shook me to the core. I wanted to just give him my bank account and say, whatever I have, just take, I don't know, you know. I didn't know what to say. I'll go on the streets. I don't know what to tell you. But I have to say he did an amazing job presenting his, his case. But that's what it's about. We have fancy organizations doing all kinds of things and they're all wonderful. But who's paying attention to these people? Who's making sure they can pay their bills? Who's making sure their children have something to eat at night? Who's taking care of those people who are disadvantaged? He has over a hundred women who he's taking care of on a weekly basis. This man is amazing. And he's calling us out as a community that we're not doing anything. It's all him. It wasn't said in an arrogant fashion at all. It was extremely sincere. But I was amazed by his presentation. 
in the end of Parshas Mase, the Torah says, Ela Mase bin Yisrael Moshe And the Torah then goes on to a long, long description of every single place where the Jewish people traveled. As we know in Sefer Dvarim, they're on the cusp of going into Eretz Yisrael. Parshas Mase is the last Parsha in the Torah that says something new that happened. And basically there the Torah goes into a discussion about every single thing, like a monotonous discussion about every single place where they traveled. By Yisru, from here, and they went to there, and they went from this place to the other place. First of all, we already knew all of that. The Torah already described the whole journey of the Jewish people from Mitzrayim till they got to Eretz Yisrael. Why do we have to repeat it? What do we learn from there? What is the point? I said first of all, but there is no second of all. So, why do we need this? What is the reason why the Torah goes to such great lengths? Think about it in the context. The story of Bria Shamayim Va'aretz, of the whole creation of the world. How many psukim are spent describing the story of creation of the world? Do you know? 31 psukim. You look it up later. 31 psukim and the whole world is created. Amazing. How many psukim, the most pivotal moment of Jewish history? The birth of a nation. Kabbalah Satorah. How many psukim are given to the story of Kabbalah Satorah? 14. So 31 psukim of Bria Shamayim Ba'aretz, 14 psukim of Kabbalah Satorah. And then we come to this pedestrian discussion about every location where they traveled, where they went, where they came, every juncture. 50 psukim. 50 psukim in the Torah, more than Bria Shamayim Ba'aretz and Kabbalah Satorah combined. So much so that one of the great Italian Nukubalim in the 1400s writes the following. Bechal ha-Torah I would never say this, but I'm quoting his words. Bechal ha-Torah In the entirety of Torah, Ein davar she-yireh shehu kamo There is nothing in the entirety of Torah that seems as extraneous, as non-essential, as this cataloging of every city and every municipality and every juncture and every crossroad and every turn they took and every city they visited. It's just pointless. What's the significance? Why the success of listening? Writes the Nesiva Shalom. Although it's very different from the rest of the style of Chumash that is so concise and is so precise. What happened here all of a sudden in Parshas Masay? Writes in Nesiva Shalom. Every human being has a journey from the day they're born till the day they expire. When we come out of the womb, it's like we're being freed from Egypt. We were stuck. We weren't able to do anything inside. Now you're free. You come out into the world and your journey begins. Just like the Jewish people who begin their journey as they come out of Mitzrayim. The shackles are lifted. Now God turns to them and says, so what are you going to do now? Now that you're free, how are you going to spend your time? It's what he says to all of us. Your ultimate destiny is to get to Eretz Yisrael. Doesn't mean to the land of Eretz Yisrael, but to the promised land. Your ultimate destiny throughout life is to make a difference in the world. To be in a more meaningful place than where you started. That is the Masaos. That is the journey of the Jewish people and says the Nesiva Shalom, the journey of every single Jew subsequently, since the Dora Midbar. 
This parsha of Masay, of the listing of all the junctures and all the crossroads and everything they did and everywhere they went, is said that for every generation, for every individual. The travels, the traverses of all of our lives are the same as those junctures, as those crossroads that the Jewish people went through as they traveled from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, to Eretz Yisrael. The critical takeaway needs to be twofold. Number one, a goal can only be reached with many components along the way. I was at a Vart the other day, and I was very touched that the Chassam, when he spoke, didn't just talk about, I'm so excited that I got engaged and this process was so amazing and Hashem was there for me, but he went through all the wonderful stages along the way that brought him to that point. That's appropriate to recognize that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have parents, you have siblings, you have grandparents. There's a way that you came to be the person who you are. It didn't just happen overnight. It didn't happen by mistake. Of course, you invested of yourself and you wanted to become the person who you are, but it's so much more than that. There's a whole story around you also. There's masos. There are many different junctures along the way. There are many different decisions that had to be made. Your parents had to make many great decisions in order to bring you to the place where you are. And you think it was easy for them to send you away to this institution and to go away for the year there and to go to this camp? It's not always so easy. But your parents did it. They made tough decisions because they wanted you to be the person who you are. And says the Nesiva Shalom number one, the first takeaway is that any meaningful journey has to be made up of many different components. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's many different turns along the way. But number two, what we learned from that story is that what makes the journey of life meaningful and rewardable, what makes it feel valuable to us is when we look at all the small and specific details of that memorable adventure. If you think about every single art scroll book that's ever been published about a great person. The story is the same in the beginning and the same in the end. They were born and the house lit up when they were two years old. And they knew all of Shas when they were probably five. And then they were just a perfect child and they learned and they learned and they learned and they learned their whole life and then they died. And they had a big funeral. That's not meaningful. That doesn't sell books. That's the story. But that's not meaningful. That's not meaningful. I do have to make a train in seven minutes. That's not meaningful. What makes it meaningful? When you go through the book and you see every chapter talks about the specific details of how they helped this one, what they did with that person, this neighbor that they had, they stopped every day along the way to say hello to them, and the security guard, they went over to them after, after they took care of an event, and they went over to the waiter or the waitress that was serving them at a wedding, and they went over to the band, and all the amazing stories and all those little things along the way, that's what makes it special. That's what makes all of our lives special. To always remember that details are important. Details matter. Even the small minutiae along the way are the ones that lead to something very significant in the end. That is something that we learn from the story of Arpa. The story of Arpa when she takes four little steps in one direction. And HaKadosh Baruch who pays her back for that small action, for that small activity, the answer is that is special. That is worth being paid back for because in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch who is so big, 
he has the ability to pay attention to things that are so small as well. Just something to think about as we walk away from a very special and uplifting Yom Tif, something we can take with us as we continue to journey throughout our experience. I